are doing a series on 1 Corinthians, uh, and this is our third week. Uh, it's called The Way of Love, and th that will become apparent as we go forward that uh, one of the big themes of this book is God's love for us and our love for each other. And uh, right in the middle of the book, chapter 13, you know, that great chapter on love. And Paul is writing to this church that he planted in Corinth. Corinth was a very prosperous city in the ancient world outside of Athens. It was the second biggest city uh, in the Greek kind of Asia Minor area. It was very prosperous, prosperous. It was very intellectual. It was thriving. It was multicultural. It was a big city. It was known for its also for its immorality, and Paul chooses to go and plant a church in this really, really difficult place after he's been in Athens. And so it's part of his second missionary journey. He comes down, he plants this church in Athens. And uh, I started looking at the first chapter last week, and we looked at Paul introducing himself as the apostle, the planter of this church, and his relationship with them. We looked at what a church is. How do, how do we understand the word church and we saw it was ecclesia the gathering of people in the ancient worlds there was an ecclesia of citizens of the cities but paul is using it in not in that sense but he's saying there's an ecclesia there's a, a gathering of god's people that get together in, in any given geography and so we looked at that and we looked at the relationship that paul understood with this really difficult place corinth as he had lived there for 18 months and then we looked at his prayer for these Beautiful people. Remember, this church is only three years old, right? It's a very young church, and it's full of enthusiasm, full of spiritual gifts. And he knows he's going to correct them because there's some problems in the church that he's heard about. And he knows he's going to correct them, but he doesn't start in that place. He starts by saying, I always thank God for you. I always thank God for the, the grace of God in your life and how he's changed you and how he, he saved you out of darkness and you are now in his kingdom. And so he starts with this beautiful prayer. Of thanks, And I said to you, it's such a good testimony for our own lives, isn't it? Whenever we try to help other people or speak to other people, it's always good to start with thanks for them and acknowledge the grace of God in their lives, that God has been kind and He's drawn us all out of darkness into light before we correct anybody. Yes? Let's start in that place. Too much of the church starts with correction, not enough love. Let's start with love and walk alongside people and encourage them as God has a future for all of us. Amen? So that's how Paul does it. So let's learn from Paul. And finally, we sang about it this morning. Paul ends. And why is he so confident? Because he says, God is faithful. And I'm confident that the faithful God of the universe is going to keep all of you, even though you're struggling right now, even though this church is going through problems, God is faithful and he will keep you standing until that day that Jesus comes back. Come on. And that's our faithfulness. That's our confidence in the faithfulness of a good father who underneath our lives has his everlasting arms holding us up. And I want to speak that over you. Whatever challenges you have this morning, God is faithful to you as his son, as his daughter, and he will continue to be faithful to you. Keep your eyes on him and he will keep you standing firm until that day. Either that you die and go to heaven to be with Jesus or he comes back. Amen. He is faithful in every way. And now we're going to look at verse 10 to 17. Remember I said to you there were five key problems that Paul addresses. And here in the first four chapters he deals with the problem of division in the church. 
And these verses outline the facts for us. And the problem really is that these people think they're pretty sharp and they are wise and they know best. Isn't that often where problems start with pride? Uh, we know better than anyone else. And so Paul challenges them on this. I can smell the meat cooking. Anyone else? <laughs> Come on. I better get to the front of the queue because I, I, ne I never get one. So I'm going to get one this morning. 1 Corinthians, Paul talking about laying out the problem of lack of unity in the church. And he says this. Listen to the language again. He starts, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there are no divisions amongst you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Again, my brothers, my sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, oh no, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas or Paul, uh, Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. There are always super spiritual people in the church, aren't there? Who let everybody else know that they're just kind of not good enough. No, we don't follow men. We follow Jesus the super spiritual ones in the church. And they've got just a bigger problem as everyone else. And here, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He challenges them. And then he says, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. And then in, he adds, yet I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Um, beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And now I plead with you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember I said he uses this name over and over in the letter. The Lord, Yahweh of the Old Testament, Jesus, in the person of Christ, Joshua, Jesus, is our salvation. He is the Messiah. Every time he says that, he's reiterating that thought in their minds. The Lord Jesus Christ, that you might speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you are perfectly joined together in the in same mind and in the same judgment. Amen. So I've got a very simple unpacking of this this morning and i hope it encourages you first of all like i've said already he appeals to them brothers and sisters he was the the apostle he was the one that planted the church if anyone had authority to speak into this church it was paul he could have just said look i'm telling you do this because i planted the church and i know what god has said you need to be you need to be unified but he doesn't do that he appeals he appeals, he says, I'm really asking you as kindly as I can to be united with each other. Instead, with this loving heart, he pleads with them. And, and this is ultimately true for how we behave in the church. All of us, especially those that lead, like me, or like anyone else that leads. Maybe you lead a school. Maybe you lead in your business. It's a very good thought to understand for yourself as you try and lead other people. Ultimately, for us in the church, we have authority in appealing to the gospel and to Jesus. 
and to the love that we have for him and the love we have for each other. That ultimately is the only authority that I have in this church is to appeal to you to live in line with the gospel in your life. Can I force you to do that? No, I can't. Am I called to be a policeman in your life? No, I'm not. I'm called to be a preacher of the gospel, to point you to Jesus, to help you fall in love with him. And as his love transforms you, you start to live from that place and you start to live, love him and love other people differently because you love him. Yes, that's what Paul says. We appeal to you in the gospel, in what Jesus has done for you, in his love, I appeal to you that you would do this, that you would love each other. And so do you notice he doesn't say, I'm going to start an organization to keep you all together. We love to do that, we don't, don't we? We start a business organization and say, well, we're going to have a new charity that's going to be a charity of unity, and we're going to call everyone together. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't start a denomination. He doesn't say, okay, well, let's get everyone thinking the same way. What does he simply do? He says, he appeals, and he says, those of you that are saved, those of you that say you're in Christ, that you love Jesus with all of your heart, please just show it. Please live it out. <laughs> please be authentic. You say you love Jesus? Okay, it's great you love Jesus. Now, show that you love Jesus by loving each other. That there's no divisions. He doesn't start a denomination. He doesn't start a new organization. He doesn't start a business to try and hold the thing together. He simply says, if you love Jesus, please show it in your behavior with each other. And he uses this word. He says, there are no divisions amongst you. You know, I looked at the, the Greek. The, the word for division is schismata, where we get schism from in English. And um, when we translate that in English, we normally translate it as to mean a party or a faction. Um, but it doesn't really mean that. The word schismata means to rip or to tear apart. Yes? To rip or to, it's a much stronger word. And I've been leading in church now for 30 years. Whenever there's division in the church, whenever there's fighting in the church, it is never neat and tidy. It is always ripping and tearing. And people's lives get destroyed. And it is incredibly painful when there's division. Now, I don't like the word division because it implies for me, you know, I divide a pizza. How do you divide a pizza? With a knife. And you cut it very neatly into little segments and everyone has a piece. And it doesn't sound too bad you divide the pizza up. My friends, division in the church is never like that. It is always ripping. It is always tearing. It always breaks people's lives. That's why Paul says, I appeal to you. In the love of Jesus, with everything that I can, that you make all the effort that you can into keeping the unity that you already have in Jesus. Because if you don't, it rips people apart. It rips the church apart. Don't do it. Come on. And we've had in our history in this church many years ago. We had a time where people were ripping and tearing. And it took us years and years and years to recover. It's not worth it, my friends. I appeal to you, says Paul. I'm appealing to you this morning. Let's keep the unity that we have, the joy that we have in Jesus. Amen? And so he emphasizes this further. 
And he says, I want all of you to agree with one another in what you say, that there's no division amongst you, but that you be perfectly united in your mind and thought. And I had a look at this phrase, perfectly united, and it's beautiful. There's a scholar called William Barclay, who's a, a writer from the 50s, and he looks at this Greek word where it talks about being perfectly joined. And it's a medical word, and this is what I loved. It's a medical word that speaks about when you, your bone has been broken, and it's healed again, and the fracture's been healed. That's what it means. To be perfectly united, he's using it in, in that sense. What, that, that which was broken and torn, let it be put together and healed like a bone that's been healed from being, being fractured. Isn't that beautiful? He says that's what it means to be perfectly united. There might have been division, but you can bring it together. And in Christ, it becomes strong like a healed bone. Man, I love that. The word is so beautiful, isn't it? I said to you last week, every word is meaningful if you will look and see what God wants to say to you out of his word. And so he appeals to them and says, I want to show this in a practical way. And then he continues to expose this kind of foolishness in the church. And we know Chloe was a, probably a, a Christian businesswoman. She lived in Ephesus, and she used to travel. The people from her household used to travel between Ephesus and Corinth doing business. And so in one of her travels, someone comes and says to her, Chloe, tell Paul, who was in Ephesus then, um, there's problems in Corinth, and the church is not going well. And that's why he writes the letter back. And so she's, he says here, yeah, some from Chloe's household inform me that there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is one of you say, I follow Paul, another I follow Paulus, another follow Cephas or Peter, and still, uh, still others say, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, of the name of Paul? And so here, the, the thing he says is there are quarrels, and the reason for their quarreling is they have this worldly preference that they're preferring one kind of Christian over another kind of Christian. They're preferring one preacher over another preacher. And Paul's saying, actually, that's the root of your problem, that you think you know best about everything. And he appeals to them, and he says, well, let me just show you here. He's saying there are these cliques in this church, and there are cheerleaders for the different preachers in the church, and they're cheerleading for their guy. So it's not even the, the apostles that are at fault here. How do we know that? Because Paul even says in 2 Corinthians, he says, I planted the church, Apollos watered it, but Jesus made it grow. And even Paul and Apollos, I think, and Peter weren't fighting with each other. It was their followers that were causing the problems. Hey, he's my favorite. And that's how division starts. Little cliques form in the church around who's our favorite guy. And Paul says, no, don't be so stupid. Don't be so worldly. Don't go there. It's only going to rip things apart. And he ultimately says there's only one person who around all things are unified, and his name is Jesus. And he appeals to them. And so the, these Corinthians are picking and choosing, and there's a pride that's come into the church and a critical approach to preaching and a judgment of others and to the preachers and leaders. And so there's a, it's kind of party spirit in the church, which includes being scornful towards the poor, which we'll find out later. So it's, Paul says there's the Paul party, right? I follow Paul. The Paul click. Those cheerleading for Paul, and they say, well, we're following in the footsteps of Paul. He planted this church. He's the real guy. We follow Paul, all right? And the second guys, I follow Apollos. Well, we know something about Apollos. He came after Paul. Uh, after Paul had planted the church, Apollos came in. And we know from Acts 18 that he really was a gifted guy. 
It says in Acts 18 verse 24, there was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria in North Africa. He came to Ephesus. He was a learned man. He had a thorough knowledge of the scripture. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke with great fervor, great passion, and taught about Jesus accurately, although he only knew the baptism of John. He only knew the baptism for repentance, hadn't yet experienced the Holy Spirit. He was a gifted guy. He was an impressive man. And we know from 2 Corinthians that a lot of the people in the church in, in Corinth didn't think Paul was particularly impressive. He wasn't big physically. We know he was probably very short-sighted. They said he's not got a big personality. He doesn't, you know, when he speaks, it's not like Apollos. I mean, Apollos is this guy that communicates so well. We prefer Apollos. Not, you know, not Paul, the intellectual guy who kind of doesn't speak very well. And then thirdly, there's the, those that say they follow Peter. I mean, Peter's one of the original apostles. I mean, Peter's the guy that Jesus said, I give you the keys to the kingdom. I mean, he's the main man. And he's the kind of main man in Jerusalem. No, no, we don't follow, you know, Paul or, or Apollos. We follow the guy. The guy is Peter. He's the rock. And so there's all these divisions, and it's really carnal. And then, like I said, there's always the super spiritual ones who put everyone in their place <laughs> and say, we really only follow Jesus. You know, all you guys, you're so carnal. Anyway, let's not ever go there, right? And so... It is possible that the, the followers in this church are making, are making more the problem than actual leaders themselves. But the point is that this church is being torn apart. So there's just some other thoughts about division. Uh, I've said to you it's never a good idea, but it's also good to acknowledge that there are distinctions between churches and ministries. And for me, that's not a wrong thing to distinguish between churches and ministries. God has made different churches and different ministries because there are different callings on people's lives and because the job of preaching the gospel is just too big for just one person. Amen? The job of preaching the gospel requires many different people with many different gifts. And I love what Spurgeon said. Remember Spurgeon? He was lived in the late 1800s here in the UK, a brilliant preacher. He said this, I believe, I bless God, that there are so many denominations. What? Really? I mean, I've always heard Christians say, you know, um, uh, people challenge Christians say, why are there so many denominations? You Christians can't even agree. Have you ever heard that before? Well, yeah, Spurgeon says, I thank God that there are so many denominations. If there were not men who differed a little in their creeds, we should never get as much of the gospel as we do. God has sent all different men to defend different kinds of truth, but Christ defended and preached all. Christ's testimony is perfect. Beautiful. Spurgeon's saying the same thing. Yes, there are some guys that understand some things, and that's why we have different denominations that emphasize different things. But ultimately, it is Jesus who is perfect and has perfected all, and only in Christ is, are all things perfect. And we will be good to remember that as we work with churches in our community and other people who think, see things slightly differently than we do. So it's one thing to prefer a minister or a leadership style or a preacher. But what Paul is saying is don't divide the church and make cheerleading teams around those people. All that's going to do is rip and tear the church apart. Don't go there. And then he appeals again. And he's kind of 
I love Paul. He kind of builds his argument and he hits his points home. Say so he kind of now he's emphasizing the point again. He says, is Christ divided? He asks him. In other words, Jesus doesn't belong to one party or another. <laughs> Jesus is not part of the Paul party or the Peter party or the Apollos party. Jesus is the Lord of all. He doesn't belong to any one party, so don't think that he does. He, he is the ruler of all, of all things, and in him there's unity. So put your faith in Jesus, not in people. This is so silly, says Paul. And then Paul emphasizes it again. Was, was Paul crucified for you? He's asking these rhetorical questions, which obviously they, they know the answer for. Of course not. So then he says, well, don't create a party around me, because I didn't die for you. All right? Jesus died for you. Not me. I want to point you to Jesus. Um, so the, the point is, wherever there's spiritual elitism, even if it's in a, in, in a spiritual way around gifts, it's always terrible. It never brings any good into the church. And Paul says, fix your eyes completely, totally on Jesus and not on people. If you fix your eyes on people, it's going to only cause problems. Don't. There's one who unifies us all. His name is Jesus. And so you might have heard the old story of the contentious Quaker who went from one church to the other, never finding the true church. Until one day someone asked him, what church are you in now? And he said, I am in the true church at last. And this person said, well, how many people are in the church? And he said, just me and my wife, and I'm not too sure about my wife sometimes either. Isn't that how it gets to in the end? When we are the only ones that know, ultimately it just becomes me, my family. Ultimately, it's only me. No one else got the truth. Come on now. Let's not be like that. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul, says Paul. And so it's interesting because even in this church, there were people highlighting baptism and saying, well, it was really important to me that Paul baptized me, you know, because he's the main guy. And Paul says, no, no, wait a moment. He doesn't want to even let the issue of baptism get divisive in the church. He says, it's, it's not even important who baptizes you. And he says, uh, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. And now you can see his mind ticking over. He's writing the letter thing. Well, actually, who did I baptize? I better say everyone, not leave anyone out. He's like, oh, he's thinking, okay, okay, yes, Crispus and Gaius. No, so no one can say that I was baptized in, my na in Paul's name. And then he's kind of, oh, yes. Yes, I also uh, baptized the house household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. It's like, okay, let's not even baptism become an issue. And then he says these amazing words, which I didn't see like this before. But he says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize. What, Paul? The great evangelist, the great church planter. No, he didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach. Isn't that interesting? He sent me to preach. I don't care who baptizes people. He sent me to preach this message, this proclamation that Jesus is Messiah. That what he, that's what he sent me to do. We would be good to learn from Paul. And so he takes them on and says, don't even let baptism become uh, uh, an issue in the church. Whoever's baptized you doesn't matter. The important thing is that the baptism represents what God has done in your life. doesn't matter who baptizes you. Because you're being baptized into Christ Jesus. And that's the most important thing. And then it's amazing to me that he says ultimately at the end of the day for his life, the most important thing for him was to preach this message 
of the gospel. He's not opposed to baptism, but we can certainly see from what Paul says here that he doesn't say baptism is essential to being saved. There are people that say you cannot be saved without being baptized. That's called baptismal regeneration. If that were true, Paul could not say what he said. The great apostle, he could not say that I'm so glad that God did not send me to baptize people if people got saved by baptism. No, the baptism is a sign of what has already happened on the inside of you by the power of the Spirit as your heart is regenerated. Baptism does not save you, but it is a very, very important declaration that you have been saved. That's what Paul is saying. And so he says he, he's trying to, I'm sure he did remember his converts, but he can't even remember who he baptized. And there's a guy called Charles Hodge, who's a theologian. He does remind us of this, though. He says this about baptism. While it is unscriptural to make baptism essential to salvation, or certainly a means of regeneration, that's being born again. You're not born again by being baptized. He also says, it's nevertheless a dangerous act of disobedience to undervalue or neglect baptism. Because what does Jesus say? Repent and be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you to be baptized. It's the first act of obedience. As a believer of someone whose heart has been regenerated by the power of the Spirit, and you are born again, you show that by being baptized as an act of obedience. You go under the water, die to your old self, and you get born uh, as you come up a new person. It's a picture of being a new person, regenerated, renewed, born again, whatever your phrase would be. And so I'd just like to finish by looking at what Paul does when he preaches. And he says there what he focuses on, this most important thing to preach. And he says, first of all, I do not preach with wisdom or eloquence. That could, of course, could also be translated, that phrase could also be translated, clever speaking. Paul was not interested in being a clever speaker. He said, no, I don't want to be a clever speaker. You know, I'm not interested, and that's why I always say, I don't care about TED Talks, man. I'm not called to give you a TED Talk every Sunday. <laughs> if you want a TED Talk about some subject, go and listen to a TED Talk, all right? I'm, I am called to preach to you the gospel of Jesus, a simple, simple message that he is Messiah. He loves you. He wants to bring you into his kingdom. He wants to regenerate you from the inside out so you can be transformed and live your life completely differently. That is what I'm called to do. I'm called to preach the gospel every week as best as I can with my gifts to you, and I hope that encourages you. That's what we're called to do, preach. Paul says he's not interested in clever speaking, although he undeniably is incredibly bright and has incredible gifts that he uses. But he's saying, I'm not depending on those gifts when I preach. I'm depending on the power of the Spirit to use the words that I have to bring life to you. And apologies to anyone on the live stream. Uh, I think it's good. Live streaming is good, but I believe that when you are sitting in a meeting like this and there is preaching, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you as you sit here and He convicts you here. And I'm not quite sure that that happens the same on a live stream. In fact, it doesn't. There's an anointing in the building through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you might, you, oh well, if you disagree with me, I don't really mind because this is what I believe. It comes by the power of the Spirit and preaching transforms people as it comes upon your ears and here in your heart and suddenly you understand by the power of the Spirit. And that happens when we are together like this. 
his message imploded, even as, you know. <laughs> Paul, Paul did come to Corinth from Athens, didn't he? And he, there, if you read in, Ath in Acts 17, he contended with the philosophers. He spoke with them in a philosophical way. You can go read it in, in Acts 17. And he contends with the, the thinkers of his day, and he preaches in a different way there. But by the time he comes to, to, um, uh, to Corinth, perhaps because of the context, perhaps because it was a completely sort of immoral place, he resolves to just preach Jesus, just preach with the power of the Spirit. And he says, I'm not interested in being clever. I want you to understand Jesus. I want the cross to not be robbed of its power. If, what he implies is, is, is an amazing thing. He's, he's saying, actually, you can preach in such a way that the gospel is robbed of its power. You're just focusing on the cleverness of the speaker. What good is that? No, we want the power of the Spirit to transform people's lives. And that comes as we simply declare the message of who Jesus is, the power of the cross. And Paul says this later. He says, for the Greeks, and I want to say for our culture, for our really clever culture, I have this conversation with my sons. They went had a very good education. But you know what the education teaches us? We don't need God. We can understand everything for ourselves. There's uh, science. I believe in science. Science explains everything. I want to say to you, if you lived anything in your life, science does not explain everything. And I love science. It doesn't, it doesn't explain the, the, the hidden places of the heart where no one else goes, but you go there at night and you know you are desperate. Science doesn't fix that. Never has. Can't possibly do that. In your darkest place, do you appeal to uh, Dawkins and his understanding of the universe to help you get out of your spot? No, you don't. You appeal to the God of heaven and you say, Jesus, without you, I'm finished. Come on. Oh, we're so clever. We don't need a God outside of ourselves. We'll figure it all out. Live for a while, and you realize this. You can't figure it all out for yourself. The older I get, the more I'm convinced of that. <laughs> I don't know everything. When you're young, you think, hey, I actually, you know, I'm quite good. I've got it, man. In your 20s, you are invincible. You launch your career. I'm going to rule the world. In your 30s, it's not so easy. There are a lot of other people also wanting to rule the world. In your 40s, God help me. I'm not quite sure I can do this anymore. In your 50s, Jesus, without you, it's impossible. That's how life works. Everybody wants to rule the world, said Tears for Fears. And they were absolutely right. And everybody is still trying to rule the world. There's one ruler. His name is Jesus. Put your hope in him. He's the king of the universe. He will help you. So Paul then says, lastly, he says that behind all of our lives, there's a call of God. And he says, you know, I declare this message. I'm faithful to the message. That that's what God's called me to do. I'm not trying to be intellectual or clever. I don't care about Greek philosophy. What I really do care about is that you understand who Jesus is and the power of the cross. That's what he says he gives himself to. And then he says, thirdly, that behind that, he's been called to do this. 
There's a deep calling in his life that is irrevocable that he can't get away from, and that is to preach. And I want to say to you, whatever your gift is, there's a deep calling on your life that motivates you in a very basic way. And so I don't know what it is for you, but for me, it is that I was called. I was a musician. I didn't particularly want to lead a church. In fact, my dad had led a church for many years, and I didn't want to do that because I saw what it was like. And for years and years, I just wanted to play music, and I did. I played music, and I had a great time. And yet there was something of God's call that began to change my life, and I couldn't help myself. I found myself getting more involved in helping to lead in a church community and preaching, and suddenly everything changed for me. It doesn't not going to be the same for you, but that's the call of God on my life. What is the call of God on your life? God has called you for something. It might to be a be a businessman, a teacher, a nurse, and there's this something in your life you call to and you know it just compels you. You can't help yourself. Paul's saying that's what it's like to follow Jesus. There's a, there's a call that takes hold of you and transforms you and you live differently because of that call. What is it for you? Might be business, might be social justice, it might be whatever. Paul says there's a calling for all of us. And don't, don't think that people don't preach and people don't call others to be like them. Girls, there are thousands of Instagram influencers that say, if you look like me, you are going to be saved. Yes, they preach a gospel of salvation by how you look. What is going to really save you is that you are beautiful. And you must have this liposuction and that thing and enlarge your breasts in this way. And you'll be so beautiful that everyone will love you. And that is your salvation. You think influencers don't preach a message? Of course they do. <laughs> we live in a culture that preaches messages all the time. My friends, there's only one person that will accept you just as you are and say you are incredibly beautiful. Stuart, you are beautiful. Just as you are. Girls, you need to hear that. Young woman, it's so hard for you right now. Being compelled to be look like this and have these lips and have this hair and these breasts. Then you will be beautiful and everyone will love you. Saved. Salvation for you. No? And what about the young men? Take off your shirt so I can see your abs. Come on. Guys, let's take our shirts off and all compare abs. If you have abs like me, you will be saved. Salvation in physical prowess. It, it, that's the message. Don't be fooled by that garbage. Paul says, I count it all. Dung. I count it. Crap. That's what he says. It's the word. The translators are too polite. Paul says, I count it all crap. All that stuff for the sake of knowing Jesus and his kingdom. And if I offended you because I said crap, I'm sorry. I'm not really because that's exactly what it says. And he says, does all of this, he preaches like this, the simplicity of this message pointing people to the cross because he does not want the cross to be emptied of its power. 
The cross has power to transform you. The cross is God's power. And Paul says, I'm putting all of my trust in God's power to transform you, not in the power of my speech or the power of my gifts or in my intellect, in my education, the fact that I know some stuff. I'm not putting confidence in that to transform you. I'm putting my confidence in the power of the cross, that there's someone who loved you so much that he came from eternity and he, he, he lived as a human being and he died for you so that you might be free. My confidence is in that message to transform you, not in anything that I have. And that's my confidence this morning, that you would know the power of the cross in your life. Amen? That the Holy Spirit would continue to transform you from the inside out that you'd live for him in the most powerful powerful way that his glory would be shown in his life paul says any blessing that came through from my life was through the preaching of this message not through who i am not through my gifts but through him jesus amen and he wants to raise blessing in all of our lives and he wants to do that as you keep your eyes focused on him the great king who holds all things together and as we sang this morning, his faithfulness is the th what we put our confidence into. He is a faithful God. Amen. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing. And uh, I want to invite you. I want to invite you for some coffee, for some tea, to enjoy some food with us. Don't rush. If you can stay, please enjoy some, some time together. And put your trust in Jesus, right? He is the one that is going to save. He is the one who is going to keep you until that day that he comes back. Let's not rely on anything else. We're going to sing. Are we going to sing goodness of God? Oh, wonderful. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to finish. Jesus, we want to thank you for the power of your words. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your goodness to us. And thank you for every good thing that you've done in our hearts and our lives this morning. And Lord, I, I do just give you all that I said and uh, this next time now. And I pray, Lord, that you come and seal this in our hearts by your Spirit. We want to leave transformed, Lord. We want to be changed by who you are, by the power of the cross in our own lives. Helping us to live. Helping us to love. Helping us to be different. Lord, we don't want to put our confidence in anything else. Not in how we look. Not in how we... Uh, our intellect, our understanding, nothing except the power of your transforming cross in our lives. And we look to you and we depend on your goodness and your kindness in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.